Well, John 7, verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I have officiated numerous weddings over the years, and have instructed couples to place their wedding bands on the appropriate finger. But until recently, I didn't realize why the ring finger was the finger right next to the pinky. Apparently, it stems from a 2,000-year-old tradition. Physicians once believed that there was a special vein of love that ran directly from the ring finger straight to your heart. Thus, it was appropriate for the love band to slip around the ring or the love finger. Soldiers often greet each other with a salute. But have you ever wondered why? Well, the military tradition goes back to medieval times when soldiers were clad with armor. When they met on the road and wanted to demonstrate peaceful intentions, they would lift the visor up above their eyes. The position of the hand against the forehead outlived the use of the armor and it became a formal greeting among soldiers. To this day, it's traditional for barbers to have red and white striped poles in front of their shops. But have you ever wondered why? Well, in times past, barbers doubled as surgeons. You could have a surgery along with your haircut. How about that? Well, when a barber finished the surgery, he used towels to soak up the excess blood, and then he would hang them out on the pole to dry. And as the wind whipped through the air, it wrapped the red towels around the white pole, forming the familiar barber stripes. And have you ever questioned why clothing manufacturers sew buttons on the sleeve of a man's jacket and these buttons serve no practical purpose whatsoever? Have you ever noticed that? Well, the custom dates back to the French General Napoleon. One day he was inspecting his troops when he noticed a soldier wiping his nose on the sleeve of his jacket. It so disgusted Napoleon that he ordered new coats for all of his soldiers, this time with buttons, to prevent any more nose wiping. Traditions are a funny thing, aren't they? We create them and embed them in the culture and stress their importance and enforce their compliance. Then in a relatively short period of time, we forget why the tradition was started in the first place. Such was the case with the Jews. They had thousands of traditions they stringently and meticulously performed. Jewish culture was steeped in ritual, yet like us, they often lost touch with the significance of those rituals. Mechanical, obligatory ritualism became a Jewish trademark, especially during the holy days, the religious feast days. The particular feast referred to in our text was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the most joyous of all the Jewish feasts. It consisted of eight days 
of celebration. In Leviticus 23, where God lays out the festive calendar for his people, the Feast of Tabernacles was the only feast where the people were commanded to rejoice before the Lord your God. He intended for it to be a happy time. Five days earlier, they observed Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And of course, this was the day of affliction and fasting and mourning over sin. God had told Israel that the Day of Atonement should be a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. In contrast, tabernacles was a time of joy and rejoicing. During this heartwarming feast, families would be reunited. The streets of Jerusalem would be full of laughter and joyful music would overflow from the temple precincts. In the Jewish prayer book, the Feast of Tabernacles is referred to by the title, The Time of Our Rejoicing. Tabernacles was a celebration. It was a jubilate. And two watchwords for the Feast of Tabernacles were expectation and appreciation. For this feast looked backwards and forwards at the same time. On the one hand, it was a time of appreciation or thanksgiving to God for his deliverance from Egypt and his provision through their 40 years of wilderness wandering. In fact, the name tabernacles sprang from God's command to observe the feast in tabernacles or tents, the same kinds of tents they lived in while they were in the wilderness. The Hebrew name for the feast, Sukkoth, means booths. When the pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem for the feast, they would take palm branches and they would build huts or booths. They decorated these huts with the fruits of the harvest. They would hang clusters of grapes on the walls and from the ceilings. It was like a giant camp out. The kids loved it. <laughs> it brought people together. All week, neighbors lived out under the stars in their little thatched huts. And it was all a reminder of the nomadic life they had lived as they stumbled through the desert. God had protected them from the elements and animals. He had provided them supernatural shoe leather, remember. Their clothes and shoes had never worn out over those 40 years. And God had also provided them their daily bread. At night, he would send the manna. When Israel arose the next morning, all they had to do was walk outside their tent and collect that day's portion. There was one requirement, though, in the making of these booths. You had to construct them in a way that you could see the sky through the roof. God wanted his people to be stargazers. To look up into the heavens and to behold his handiwork. His creation. All of this was God's way of drawing his people back to their creator. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles reminded the Hebrews of God's past provisions. But in addition, it also pointed them to God's future promises. For living out under the stars reminded them that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. They were sojourners en route to their heavenly home. The feast was scheduled at the end of the harvest and looked to the end of the age when God would complete His great harvest of souls and establish His kingdom on the earth. During the feast, 70 bullocks were sacrificed on the altar. And the priest always said that they represented the 70 nations that comprise the Gentile world and speak of their inclusion in God's coming kingdom. The most important ritual associated with the Feast of Tabernacles 
took place each day in the temple. A processional of priests made a journey. A parade marched from the courtyard of the temple and out its gates, through the southern streets of Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam, where they filled their golden vessels with water and then returned to the temple. As the priests marched along, they all played instruments. I sort of imagine a jazz band parading through the streets of New Orleans at Mardi Gras. They would play and sing as they went. Folks would sing Isaiah 12 verse 3. Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. When the procession of priests returned to the temple, they then poured out their water on the altar of sacrifice and they sang some select psalms. Psalm 113 to 118, the Hallel Psalms. This ritual was so important to the Feast of Tabernacles that the whole feast went by the name House of Outpouring. It was a reference to this tradition. It's also interesting that the gate used to enter and exit the temple with the water was also named after this ceremony. It was called the Water Gate. And the first priest to pass through the water gate, he was named Levi Nixonstein. (laughs) Just kidding. You know, because of that infamous President Nixon, in our culture the word Watergate has become synonymous with scandal and betrayal. But at the time of Jesus, the word Watergate spoke of salvation and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people. It was a reminder of God's promise to throw open his spiritual sluice gates and just flood out the hearts of his people with grace. The outpouring of the water, as with the entire Feast of Tabernacles, looked both backwards and forwards. It reminded the Hebrews of God's provision in the wilderness. When they were thirsty, God told Moses to strike the rock and out poured water. God was faithful to slake their physical thirst. But it also pointed to God's promise to one day send His Spirit to indwell and immerse and influence all mankind, both Jew and Gentile alike, to satisfy our spiritual thirst. In Joel 2 verse 28, God promised, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. When the priest at the head of the parade arrived back at the altar in the temple and tipped over his vessel and that water began to roll over the lip of the jar. The spilling of that water was supposed to heighten the people's expectations that what the priest was doing symbolically, God wanted to do spiritually. God would one day pour out His Spirit from the golden jar of His grace. Each of these seven days during the Feast of Tabernacles, this ceremony of outpouring was performed. The ritual was called the Hosanna. But on the eighth day, the last day of the feast that we read about here, this ceremony was embellished and heightened and given a grander name. It was called Hosanna Rabbah or the Great Hosanna. Think of it this way. During the Olympic Games, the hottest tickets are always for the closing ceremonies, the grand finale. Why? Because ticket buyers know that the, that the Olympic organizers always save the best to last. Everybody wants to be there for the grand finale. And this was true in the temple that day. It was packed with people. 
As John puts it, it was the last day, the great day of the feast. The Jews had all gathered for their closing ceremonies. Their booths had now been taken down. The people had brought their dried out branches with them to the temple. The priests had already made their daily rounds with their golden pitchers from the temple through the water gate down to the pool of Siloam, back again. But this time, they filled their vessels twice as full. And when they re-entered the temple, they approached the altar with their pitchers literally sloshing over the brim. In these closing ceremonies, rather than simply pour out water on the altar as they had done the seven previous days, they had a different procedure. This time they marched around the altar seven times. A reminder of the Hebrews' victory at Jericho. Remember the desert wanderings. How did they end? They ended when they went to Jericho. And there they marched seven times around the city and blew their trumpets in obedience to the Lord's command. And at that last trumpet blast, the city walls miraculously came a-tumbling down. You remember the story? Well, this grand finale, this seven-lap circle around the altar was a wonderful way to end the feast and send the people home. It reminded them that God is able to give them victory over their enemies in the past, in the present, and even in the future. When that priest finished the seventh revolution and emptied his jar, the people erupted in praise. They sang Hosanna. And they all shook their branches toward the altar. It was like thunder sticks at a baseball game, all going off at the same time. It fulfilled the command to praise God with heart and mouth and hands. Once the crowd had died down, there was a silence. For the Feast of Tabernacles wasn't quite over. It concluded with several animal sacrifices that needed a moment of preparation between the ceremony and their offering. And so here's the scene that day. The altar is soaked with water. The temple floor is now covered with dry leaves. The people are catching their breath after having praised God as the priests prepare the sacrifice. When suddenly, in the midst of that quiet, suddenly that quiet is interrupted from the back of the temple. For a shrill voice cries out, The phrase that John uses, cried out, when translated, literally means the bellow of a raven. Ha! It was a shrill yell, a harsh scream. It was a raven squawk. Donald G. refers to this moment as the day Jesus shouted. Hey, Jesus didn't shout often. He usually spoke calmly and gently. But on this day, he cried out. He broke up the closing ceremonies with a clarion call. From the back of the temple, he shouted, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The crowd was stunned. They were frozen in their tracks. I'm sure priests dropped their shovels and spilt hot coals on the floor. The sacrifice might have tumbled off the altar and jars were kicked over. You've never seen so many jaws dragging the floor at one time. 
Jesus had stunned the crowd that day with both his impeccable timing and he had shocked them with the boldness of his offer. You see, the Jews and priests and people alike, they'd all been muddling through a ritual. They'd just been tipping their hat to tradition. Oh, they had enjoyed the feast as a family time, a social event with a few friends. This was a traditional celebration of Judaism. No one had come to the feast that day expecting anything revolutionary. All week, they had been immersed in symbolism of all. They'd been shining their barber poles and saluting one another and playing with their wedding rings and sewing buttons on the sleeves of their jackets. But most, if not all, of the people that day had given very little thought to what it all meant, to where this all pointed, to where this was going. For astute Jews, their traditions might have caused some nostalgia or maybe a faint hope for the future, but I'm certain not a single person that day had seriously considered that these rituals could have a bearing on their present reality. In essence, Jesus was saying to them, Wake up, my friends. I want to turn your rituals into reality. I want to turn all of these symbols into real substance. You have now poured out water in this temple, but I now want to pour out my Holy Spirit, the water of refreshment in the temple of your heart. When we dissect it, the cry that Jesus uttered actually consisted of four calls. He says, admit that you're thirsty. Submit your will to me. Then I'll transmit the Holy Spirit. And you'll emit a river of living water. This was Jesus' cry on that last day. That great day of the feast. And this is his promise to you and me today. See, most of you come to church every Sunday. It's fun. Oh, it's good fellowship. It's a great social time. It's even a family time for some of you. It's a vital part of your weekly routine, but it's just that. It's routine. You've made coming to church a tradition, a barber pole, a salute to God. It's the wedding ring in your relationship with Jesus. Sometimes it's about as relevant as the buttons on the sleeve of a jacket. You come to church but are you really expecting to encounter God? I hope you've listened today. For today in this room, the raven call of Christ has sounded from the back. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Jesus is calling. Jesus wants to turn our ritual into reality. He wants to turn our tradition into a present an ongoing condition. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts. Do you thirst? Do you long for more? Do you long for real deep down soul satisfaction? Do you believe there's more to walking with God than what you've experienced to this point? I hope you do. Is there a deep down discontent in your heart? A persistent pounding that won't let you rest or be at peace? There is in my heart. Everyone thirsts. The problem is that some people won't admit that they thirst for God. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, 
C.S. Lewis, he writes about our deepest hungers. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Hey, did you know that millions of Americans today just are sucking on a pacifier? Call it sex or drugs or fame or success. But they're just sucking on what will never satisfy. And, and, and all they're doing is, is masking over the deep longing in their heart. They don't realize that what they really thirst for is God. Jesus challenges all humans to admit that, that He is their desire. He is who we really thirst for. And notice He wasn't just crying out to unbelievers. Oh no, the call of Christ was for everyone that day under the sound of His voice. His disciples included. And I don't care how far you grow or mature spiritually, how deeply you sink your roots into God, Jesus wants you to admit that you thirst for more. You know, if you're a transplant from the north, or if you've joined us from out west, we've got a southern expression you need to know about. It's used to describe a strong thirst. Sometimes we'll say, I got the cotton mouth. You ever heard that expression? Imagine asking for water to wet your lips and moisten your tongue and soothe your throat, yet instead someone stuffs a few balls of cotton down your throat. My, oh my. And yet, does your soul today feel like it's suffering from the cotton mouth? It's dry and it's parched and it's in need of a long, deep drink of something wet and refreshing? Hey, Jesus says to us today, will you admit you're thirsty for me? And then Jesus shouts, come to me and drink. But you've got to come. Once there was a female skeleton that was found out in the hot sands of the Mojave Desert. And a few feet away was a note that this woman had scribbled just before she died. It read, I'm exhausted and must have water. I don't believe that I can last much longer. And obviously she didn't. She died of dehydration and sun exposure. But how tragic that she died just two miles from an oasis called Surprise Springs where cool, fresh, subterranean water bubbles up in abundance. You know, thousands of people that day in Jerusalem were dying of thirst. What they didn't know was that the spring of living water was right there in their midst. Several chapters earlier in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman by Jacob's well in the city of Samaria. And there he tells her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. <laughs> well water, it can slake a thirst, but it can't satisfy your soul. I mean, just as you can't fit a square peg into a round hole, you can't fulfill a spiritual need 
with a material object. Buy your boats and cars and houses and furniture. Eat the world's finest foods and drink its most expensive wines. Gorge yourself on the ultimate in entertainment and climb the highest rungs of success and power. Dance in the limelight of stardom. But you'll thirst again. Trust me, you'll thirst again. You can count on it. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, but whoever thirsts of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This living water Jesus promises, it has a paradoxical quality. It slakes your thirst fully and completely, yet simultaneously it causes you to thirst for more of the same. With God you are full and thirsty all at the same time. All our needs are met, yet we want more of Jesus. Our Lord is saying to us, if you want to drink living water, then come and submit your life to me. In, in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, God describes the double sin of his people Israel. It's so sad. He writes, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, first an explanation. Cisterns is not the opposite of brethren. Get that? Cisterns were, were water reservoirs. They were uh, usually carved out of the rock where they would just fill up water and, and be able to save the water. But the people of Israel had forsaken this fountain, this unbroken flow of refreshment. And they had looked to the cracked, leaky reservoirs of this empty world. Jesus is offering them a drink, but to receive it, they have to leave behind the broken cisterns, the world's attractions. And they have to submit their lives and build their lives completely around Jesus. I heard of an ancient tribe of hunters in Africa who bagged elephants for food. But when they made a successful kill, rather than drag the heavy elephant back to the camp, they simply moved their camp to the elephant. They built their camp around the source of food. This is what the desert nomads of Israel do today. They camp around a well of water until it dries up. And then they move their camp on to a new water supply. They camp around the, the fountain, around the water supply. And this illustrates the call of Jesus to you and me. You can drink this water freely. He offers it to us freely. But the fountain doesn't flow to you, my friend. You have to come to the fountain. You have to submit to Jesus. You have to uproot from old habits. And you have to forsake familiar surroundings. And you have to rebuild your life around the fountainhead, around Jesus. It's interesting, John adds a footnote in chapter 7, verse 39, that Jesus made this promise before he was glorified. Apparently, before Jesus received the authority to pour out living water, he first had to earn the right. And this is important. He had to die on a cruel cross and rise from the dead and ascend back to glory before he was ever entitled to give these gifts to men. Just as an angel was placed in the Garden of Eden to guard access to the Tree of Life, likewise, Jesus has been placed in charge 
of discharging this living water. In Matthew 3 verse 11, John the Baptist said of Jesus, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Did you know that in all of the earth, only Jesus has the right to pour out this life-giving water? This is why you need to admit you're thirsty and then come to Jesus and submit your life to Him. And then Jesus beckons us to drink. I love that. Just drink. This is how God transmits the Holy Spirit with a drink, with a spiritual slurp. God wants you to come to Him and take a big gulp. You know, the ritual performed on the Feast of Tabernacles, it looked back to God's provision in the wilderness. Twice the Hebrews ran out of water and they came crying to Moses for help. Twice God met their need in a miraculous way. The first time, God led Moses to strike a rock with his rod and outflowed water. But the second time the people brought their need to Moses, God told him not to strike the rock, but to simply speak to the rock and it would give its water. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, Paul tells us that this all had prophetic implications. That the rock was a type of Christ who God struck on the cross. He was crucified in our place. By His stripes, Jesus now brings healing to our lives. But Jesus doesn't need to be struck twice. His work on the cross was sufficient for all our sin. Now all we have to do is just speak to the rock. And the Holy Spirit releases a river of spiritual refreshment that flows into our lives. Have you spoken to the rock? Have you asked Jesus to fill you? Have you just taken a drink? Have you had faith? Jesus uses this word drink to describe what's required of us to receive the power and joy and refreshment of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, this one word drink clears up mounds and mounds of potential confusion. Some people have mistakenly thought that before they can be filled with the Spirit, they have to ha make some great sacrifice for God. Or do some worthy deed. Or completely empty themselves of every speck of selfishness and sin. Other people think that they have to fall into some spiritual trance. Or maybe be prayed over by a charismatic evangelist. But Jesus gives us just one order. Drink. You can do that. We all can do that. Drinking is the most natural, simple, easily emulated action possible. Have you noticed that you don't have to give babies drinking lessons? Have you noticed that? It's just the thing they do instinctively. Just stick a nipple in the baby's mouth and the ability to drink comes naturally. Likewise, if you want the Holy Spirit to rise up within you, then submit to Jesus and just drink. In the words of the old Sprite commercial, obey your thirst. Speak to the rock of Christ. Then open up your heart. Then tip back the promise of God and take a big gulp of His grace. A slurp of the Holy Spirit. You see, to have faith is the same as to drink. It's just a natural response. I used to 
eat lunch. The boys will know what I'm talking about. But I used to eat lunch at a barbecue joint near our house that served sweet tea in these extra large styrofoam cups. They were actually more like a barrel. But this enormous cup allowed me to take my last refill with me when I left. So I could go back to work and I could sip on it all afternoon. It was really great. But this is what God, this is God's desire for you and I when it comes to the Holy Spirit. That throughout the day, whenever we get thirsty, we can just tip back His promise. And we can take a slurp of the Holy Spirit. We can drink in the refreshment. Jesus says that if we do, if we drink, out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. Literally, rapids of white water. Rushing, cooling, satisfying refreshment will flow from our hearts. You know, too many Christians today, they drink from stagnant water. From pools of ritual and puddles of ceremony. Rather than from the fresh, clean water of God's Spirit. If your Christian experience is like an algae-covered pond then you need to change that. If all your Christian experience is, it's just a pond, a breeding ground for doubts and fears and worries and sins. Here's why. It's because a pond only takes in. Never gives out. There's no real movement. That's why it breeds deadness. But when you drink of living water, a stream arises from the dry dirt of your heart. It bubbles up and percolates and builds until it becomes a raging river that overflows your life to the lives of those around you. You're taking in, but you're also giving out. I love Ezekiel 47. We're told that in the kingdom age, a spring of water will bubble up right next to the altar there in Jerusalem. And that water will begin to flow southward. In Ezekiel's vision, he sees about a third of a mile downstream. And he notices that the river now is ankle deep. Then by the time he sees two-thirds of the way downstream, he notices that the water's waist deep. And then he's able to see a mile downstream. And suddenly the water has risen over his head. And this is the picture of what God wants to do in your life and in my life. He starts out with us just splashing in His forgiveness and grace. We're like little babies out in the wading pool. Just splashing in forgiveness. But before long, we start wading waist deep in joy and peace. And then finally, we're in over our head. We're drowning in a sea of love and engulfed in His supernatural power. When I read the call of Jesus on that last day, that great day of the feast, I think of a white water excursion. If you've never been on one of these excursions, you should go. What a rush to feel the power of a raging river flow under you. Thousands of gallons of water moving and twisting and bubbling up. And when you fall in, and you should. <laughs> you should fall in intentionally, at least just once. When you fall in, the power just overtakes you. You're just completely enveloped in that massive sea of surf. And this is what God wants to do in my life and in your life. He wants to overwhelm us. Have you ever been overwhelmed by God? God wants to catch us up in more of Him than we can handle. He wants to overwhelm us in the Holy Spirit. As kids in Sunday school, we used to sing the song, Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing. Deep and wide. You remember that? 
Well, God wants to make this a reality in our lives today. He wants our experience of Him to be deep and wide. I heard of a man that once said that the greatest experience a person can have is to be a container. That we have been made to hold or to contain the life of God. And this is an incredible calling. But I don't believe it's the greatest experience that we can have. For God has not just called us to be a container. He's called us to be a conduit. Not a stagnant pool, but a channel of blessing to others. God wants to begin a river of blessing from beside the altar of your heart. And then He wants to deepen it and widen it as it flows from your life into the desert of this world. He wants you to be a conduit through which His grace and mercy flow to others. Once there was a little girl, she asked her mom, she said, Mommy, is God as big as the universe? (laughs) The mom said, He sure is. And then she asked, And is God living in our hearts? She replied, Yes, honey. When we become Christians, He comes to live inside of our hearts. Well, the mother could see the, little, the wheels turning in her little girl's head. And finally, she concluded, she says, Well, if God is that big, yet He lives inside of us, He must be showing through. And indeed, He should be. He should be showing through. God wants to create a river in you this morning that will flow out of you to others. But it's up to you to admit your thirst. To admit you thirst for Him. And then it's up to you to submit your life to Jesus. And to camp your life. To build your life around Him. And then you have to take a drink. But it's easy. It's just having faith. And when you do, He'll transmit the Holy Spirit to your life. Then you'll emit a life-giving stream that will flow from your life to the others around you. Hey, Jesus comes to us this morning by the water gate. Will you open your heart to Him?